Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey, everybody out there. Welcome to another edition of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? No Script, No Problem is the show that takes you behind the curtain of unscripted television like never before with insight from some of the best in the business of reality television, documentary series, competition shows, social experiment, true crime, and much more. From The Bachelor to Breaking Amish to Love is Blind to Ghost Hunters, if it's unscripted, we'll get into it. I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I'm a 15-year veteran producer of unscripted television with shows like Extreme Makeover Home Edition, BattleBots, Outdaughtered, The Rachel Zoe Project, and Pros vs. Joes among my credits each week. I talk to the talented people who've made unscripted TV, documentaries, true crime, and game shows, not just something you watch or you consume, but a cultural phenomenon. Now, if you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe and rate the show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe. I believe.com. All righty, let's get started. Today, my guest is one of the most respected network executives in all of reality television. She has held posts at Discovery Channel, TLC, AE, and is currently at the History Channel. Some of the unscripted series that she has helped launch include Breaking Amish and My 600 Pound Life while she was at TLC. She joined AE Network in 2015 as SVP of Programming, where she was responsible for overseeing such critically praised series as the Emmy-winning Leah Remini Scientology and the Aftermath and the IDA award-nominated series Kids Behind Bars, Life or Parole. And then in November of 2019, she moved over to the History Channel where she is the Senior Vice President, Development and Programming. Please welcome Amy Savitsky. Amy, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. You got you got a good voice for podcasting. Uh, I like it. Thank, wow, thank <laughs> you. That yes, thank you. That's that's it's a big compliment. I appreciate that. I don't know about you, but um, you know, I see a lot of my friends now posting photos. People are starting to get back to work, which is very encouraging. Um, as you're taking development pitches now, are you? You know, is the discussion we're looking past? You know, fingers crossed, looking past COVID and looking at pitches, thinking about okay, well, let let's think into the future, or are you guys going, okay, we may be in this for a while. Let's think about, you know, what do we want for now, for two months, three months, and we may be dealing with, you know, this type of, of situation. What, what do you, how are you guys looking at development right now? I think we're looking at it both ways. You know, we're, we're always looking for that big pie in the sky, epic idea, whether it's our next mega doc or it's our next series. Um, and at this point, anything we're commissioning is most likely to hit in 2021 anyway. Right. There's probably not much we would commission as of now that would hit this year. But we are also keeping an eye toward and asking ourselves the questions when ideas come in. If we had to produce it now, could we? Right. You know, or or if the pandemic, you know, keeps certain restrictions in place through the, let's say even through the first quarter of 2021, could we produce the show? So right. we're, we're just evaluating the creative, creative on its own merit, but we are also looking at producibility. So um, it's kind of happening both ways. And some of the, the bigger, more ambitious projects, it doesn't mean we can't or won't greenlight them. It just me means they, they may have delays if there are COVID restrictions in place that don't allow us to get those shows made right away. I look at a show like Alone, that's probably one that you could do now, right? Like you guys could probably pull off alone, correct? Because yeah, so that's great. Correct. Yeah, okay. alone is an is a we're in, a, in the middle of an amazing season right now. Um, the show in general is a fantastic show. It's yes. actually it's actually it's funny. It's the one for our channel, which is a, a very male skewing channel. But that show, out of all of them, is our most dual skewing series that we have on the air. So we have quite a few women watching that one too, which I love. So uh, you're right. And there's another, the other one that's like that is Mountain Men, because again, okay. you're, you know, you're mostly dealing with people who are living solitary. They're not in big crowds of yeah. people. They're not in urban environments. So we have a few shows like that where we're lucky enough to be able to make those regardless. 
But yeah, are you a fan of Alone? I do. I really appreciate Alone. I think that when I first heard of the idea, you know, the skeptic in me was like, oh, they're never going to be able to use the cameras and they're out there for this indeterminate period of time. It could be boring. But I think they do a fantastic job editing. And then I think it's just, you know, they they always pick the beautiful locations from a, from the standpoint of like, OK, well, now you, you have this great drone footage. And then I think the music really heightens that tension. And then they drop out the music at that perfect point to really allow you to breathe and feel like you're right there. It's freezing cold. Oh, my God, they might get eaten by an animal. And you know what's interesting? And thank you for saying that. I I agree with you. And that one is I can't take any credit for that show. That's been going on for years at History. Um, but I will say, I don't know, maybe it's interesting to look at that production model as we sit in the time of COVID, right? And yeah. it feels like it's potentially a show that could have been birthed out of the time we're in, Yeah, and, you know, given the way it's, it's, it's self-shot and all of that. Um, but I think, you know, that one, those choices were made for creative reasons, for right. really leaning into the authenticity of the experience. If you're, if you're telling uh, the audience that they're alone, they have to be alone for it to be the, the real true scary maximum experience. You can't have a, a camera guy, you know, off, uh, yeah. off camera sitting there. So it's just interesting though. That's a show that I could easily see a producer today looking at as, mm, that's an interesting model. And if they can train up people to um, appropriately self-shoot so that it still looks and it's good and it doesn't feel, you know, cheaply made or it's, it's specifically made for COVID. I think it's an interesting thing to look at right now. And I'm curious, I will be very curious to see what kind of shows come out in the next six to nine months that are being made in this current environment and how creative people are getting with it. I look at a lot of these shows that are being done and rushed into production um, because we are in COVID and everyone needs product, everyone needs content that are self-shot or they are, you know, focused on Zooms. um, And it's not, as well produced. It they feel rushed and that's why I do appreciate a show like Alone which I know you as you said those were creative choices. But this is an interesting conversation because I think what we're talking about now is the it echoes the conversations we're having internally as we look at development, right? And we're yeah. cognizant of COVID, but we don't necessarily want to make shows that feel like they were produced in COVID or that remind people of COVID. I think we're all a little zoomed out, right? Like both from a personal perspective, but also seeing a lot of the quick turn stuff that's popped up on television in the last few months. I think everyone's like, I don't really want to look at another Zoom interview. 100%. Right? 100%. Right. So we're having to think, we're having to dig a little deep and think, all right, well, what is a what is a creative way to execute this that really is about the creative, but is also producible? That doesn't, you know, that, that we're in this environment, we have certain constraints that can o- often breed really great creative innovation. Um, but I think we're very cognizant of not having it look like it was made because of COVID, if that makes any sense. All right, let's take a step back. Um, right. I always like I always like to ask my my guests um, how they got into this wacky world of unscripted television. Um, and so I'd love to dig in and kind of hear your background, um, and kind of how you got to where you're at as a executive. The thing that I've always loved is story. So I was a, I was an, am an avid reader, Okay. um, both a fiction and nonfiction, but like I, when I was like 12, I would, I was consuming every Stephen King book that was ever written and was waiting eagerly for the next one he would put out. And so I've always liked to escape into story and, um, when I was in college, I didn't really think much about, you know, documentary and unscripted. I actually thought I was going to be a stage actress, Broadway actor is what what I thought I would do. Right. But of course, of course, being the analytical person I am, I'm like, well, I can't be a starving actor. So I got to get a day job (laughs) while I try to like make it in, in theater. So I went to, I went to business school and I, um, ended up coming out the other end with a job at a technology company, um, Oracle, which is a database company and, um, thought, okay, I'm going to move to New York. I'm going to do this job that gives me a livable income and I'm going to audition. Well, after about six months in that, that tech job, I was like, this really is not for me. So I departed that company and I moved to LA. 
And I, I, you know, I've always, I'd always wanted to go to California, had never been before. And after I kind of pounded the pavement for a couple of weeks, I out of serendipitously um, yeah. ended up at DreamWorks. Um, oh, okay. And it's, and it, you know, it was, it was, let me think, what year are we in here? We were in probably 1998. So it was still a pretty nascent studio. Um, it was like the hot place in town. They were, you know, touting themselves as very um, creative and artist friendly. And, um, you know, it was Katzenberg and Spielberg yeah. and Geffen. I mean, right. So it was a really, really exciting place to be as a young person. Sure. And, uh, and once I was there, I was like, I have zero desire to ever be in front of the camera or to be on stage. It's way more interesting to be on this side where you're basically a curator of stories. It's, it's went back to yeah. story, right? Yeah. So, sure. um, so I was, uh, at DreamWorks for a few years. And eventually, I'm just going to make a really long story very short. Eventually, and I thought I thought my career would be in scripted in, in okay. features, like that's yeah. what I was really digging. But circumstances led me back to the East Coast, and um, through a family connection, I ended up getting an assistant job or a coordinator job in the media partnerships uh, department at Discovery Communications. Okay, and I, so my whole world opened suddenly to this other kind of content. Um, and that, that's sort of how I found my way into, uh, unscripted television. All right. So let's talk about some of the, the shows that you've worked on and helped to develop. Obviously, um, Alaska, the last frontier has been nominated multiple times for Emmys and, you know, uh, was kind of, you know, there's been a zillion shows about Alaska, but that one, re yeah. And, and it's, again, w when I look at shows that get greenlit and shows that then, you know, go on the air, I always look at, okay, well, what's different about this one? So I'd love to know when that one came into Discovery, why did you guys, why did you say, oh, well, this is different. We should go with Alaska, The Last Frontier. You're right. There had been a lot of Alaska shows. Sure. Discovery had had um, Deadliest Catch on for quite a while. Right. And I feel like at the time, you know, David Zaslav was was CEO. And I feel like he had said to us at the time, hey, like enough Alaska, right? Like okay. there, there's a lot out there. Let's branch out. We got enough Alaska. And there was a, a tape that had just come in right around, around that time called Gold Rush. And yes. I, I remember, you know, there was a little like uh, – proverbial fist pounding on the table of we got to do the show we got to do the show and um and we did the show and it became yeah. a, a great hit for them and then after that i think it was like well okay well maybe we can do some more alaska <laughs> but only <laughs> only only if we, we find a way to differentiate it from what these sure. other things have done so it's interesting on on alaska the last frontier that started off as a casting exercise, like a casting okay. expedition. We sent a producer up to Alaska. I think we were looking just for like rugged off-grid families, honestly. And this is yeah. Bush people didn't Bush people didn't exist yet. Um and neither did Life Below Zero. Like there none of that was out there yet. So we we did a casting um expedition and the first thing that came back were, was like paper profiles of different families and how okay. they lived. And so we identified the Kilcher family. And we're like, that sounds really interesting based on, you know, what that write-up was. We sent the producer up to film a tape. And what he did really smartly, which has now become a very uh, common way of, of framing a show, especially in, in male factual, is he figured out what the ticking clock was. The original tape that came in for that show was called Before the Freeze. Okay. Because it was this idea that that family, that group of people, they had to prepare together or die alone. Meaning if they didn't batten down the hatches and get all the supplies and everything ready before the big freeze hit, there, were, there was going to be some long suffering. Yeah. So we really liked the stakes of having to get all of that done and do it in a way that involved working together, looking out for each other. Before the freeze hit, when you're going into almost like this state of like enforced enclosure and hibernation, right? And it's like this harsh landscape. Anyway, there just hadn't been anything like it. It seems like right. now when I describe it, oh, that's every Alaska show. <laughs> but and, and it has been. But at the time, yeah. there wasn't anything. There was right. Deadliest Catch. There was Gold Rush. Uh, I'm trying to think. I guess History Channel 
had ice road truckers. Correct. Right? So, and there might have been another thing that history did at the time too. I can't recall, but there wasn't anything like this. So, because right. this was before Life Below Zero. Oh yeah, before that, before right. Bush people, it was that that right. first thing that had really done that was an immersive, character-driven kind of real right. life survival series. Yeah. Just reflecting back, but it really did birth all of these other shows, and they're all different in some ways. Bush people is much much funnier, right? It's a different, it's sure. a more comical yeah. the vibe fish is out different. of water. Yeah. yeah. And Life Below Zero is very different from that. But um, that was Last Frontier. And then we just had to figure out the title because again, it was called, called Before the Freeze for the, I, mean, I still remember the beautiful yeah. presentation tape. It feels like there's an endless supply of shows there. Why do you think audiences just love series in Alaska? Gosh, I think there's so many reasons. I think Alaska is a little otherworldly. It feels yeah. like its own planet almost. It's it they they don't play by the same rules in Alaska as they do in the lower 48. The landscape looks different, especially when you're filming in that harsh, cold winter time. It just feels foreign. And it's and the type of people who choose to live there are, are a certain breed of individual. Yeah. Who who are made of um uh you know, a pioneering outlaw or like survivalist spirit. So I think there's something, at least, especially in the male universe, there's something weirdly aspirational about it. It's like the ultimate, it's like a a, a true embodied survival show. Instead of being a contrived format, it's like people who go there are surviving every day between between wild look. It's funny because at at A&E, we part of the, I was part of the series Alaska PD and that's, one of the reasons we decided to do that show there, I mean, state Alaska State Troopers had been on National Geographic a few years before, and it did very well for them. And as we were going back up and casting in these different towns, just in terms of what police departments we wanted to be with, um, it was really about the different kinds of crime, the animal life, um, yeah. dealing with policing in sub-zero temperatures. It just uh, was a whole other world that led to different kinds of challenges. So that's what I think. I think it's there's something aspirational. There's something very otherworldly about it. It yeah. almost feels like its own subculture. So I, I, you know, and I'm obviously not a man, but even I find these Alaska, whenever I see Alaska shows, there's something alluring and, and very kind of mesmerizing about life up there. All right. I, I want to move to TLC, your time oh, at TLC. Oh, yeah. One of, one of my, one of my, the favorite times of my career. Okay. <laughs> it's just well, such a fun channel to work for. Well, it's ridiculous, yeah, you, but it's fun. Why don't you tell me what, what was so enjoyable about working at TLC? Well, you have to remember to say that I have to back up a little. Before I was at Discovery Channel, I was at Discovery Health Channel for okay. about six years. Okay. And Discovery Health, we created a lot of shows that became feeder shows into TLC. So we had, you know, My Strange Addiction started at Discovery Health. The Duggars started there. John and Kate Plus Eight started there. They all started as specials. Like they were, they were called different yeah. things and, be, and became series on TLC. We did I Didn't Know I Was Pregnant. You know, we had these like, crazy shows that had right. some some loose anchor to health that ultimately went on and went over to TLC. And those were always so much fun to work on. So after health, I went over to Discovery Channel. And if I'm being really honest, at, at that time in my life, that kind of male factual wasn't what got me personally excited. It wasn't it just sure. wasn't what I found particularly fun on a personal level. So when Amy Winter asked me to go over to TLC, I was so excited uh, because I had watched them put Sister Wives on the air. John and Kate was a huge show for them at the time. They had Long Island Medium. They were just right. doing like really amazing shows. And sort of the, the mantra over, over there was always this idea of our content lives best in relatable meets remarkable, right? You yeah. want to see that you want sure. the viewer to be able to see a little bit of themselves, but also then something that feels Extraordinary. Um, extraordinary. Yeah. So, um, and when I went over to, to TLC, you know, Amy Winter, who's now at Lifetime, uh, was, we just had this great team that she pulled together. Like everybody was marching to the same drumbeat. We had so much, we just really gelled as a team, even though we were split East Coast, West Coast, everybody kind of worked as one. And also I have to, I can't forget Howard Lee. You know, he yeah. 
um, is one of the most creative people and one of the most fun people I've ever worked with. He's wicked in the best way. And I have never seen someone like he just knows how to distill down. We'd come in and I'd say, okay, we're going to buy this show. It's called My Giant Life. It was a show about, you know, giants, people who are unusually tall, some with Marfan syndrome and some, you know, mostly with Marfan syndrome, but he would say, okay. And he did this when we did some of the the shows with uh, little people as well, like the little couple. He'd say, all right, we, we really want people to be able to feel what it's like to be someone who is this tall, right? And so we're going to shoot the show from their point of view where the cameras are going to be as high as their eyeline so that when we are walking, you know, with them, you're seeing above everybody's heads or when we're shooting them, you know, seated in a room, we want to play with perspective so that you can really, you know, kind of, um, inhabit this world of being a really unusually tall or unusually small person. And I just always thought his creative ideas were genius and he yeah. really would bring, bring these shows to life. So now I'm like rambling, but TLC was just a fun, play, <laughs> fun playground of a place to work. Can you tell me a little bit about the process that went into developing my 600 pound life? So that one's really interesting. I, I'm pretty sure Jonathan from Megala Media pitched me that years before I went, a few years before I went to TLC. So he was filming that um, almost as a documentary he, some of the, in that first season, he had been filming some of those people between four and seven years. Okay. Like, so and wow. it was originally, I know it was originally called last chance to live. And I remember him showing me the reel at real screen and, uh, one year, and I don't, I, I must've been at discovery health. I can't remember if we made a play for it or not, but he ended up selling it somewhere else. And then I just lost track of it. Okay. Then I, then I went to discovery. Then I went to TLC and he was one of the first producers I talked to when I landed at TLC. And he's like, hey, remember that project you really liked at Discovery Health? I was like, yeah. He's like, well, it's still available. And I've been filming. I've continued to film with these people. And, um, and now I have additional footage I can show you where, you know, showing the dramatic weight loss. And so, um, and here's what I'll reveal on a personal level. Like I, I think even when I started TLC, I was a hundred pounds heavier than I currently am. Okay. So I've had my own like weight issues. And so for me, it wasn't like, oh, let me stop and stare at these freaky people. I didn't look at it that way. I was like, I, I felt I could understand. I honestly could understand how people could eat themselves that large, right? Like out of whatever it is of trauma, emotional issues to feel and feel ostracized and to feel like, wow, this doctor, Dr. Nazwarden, is, is the one guy who will give me this procedure who could change my life, not only save my life, but make me feel normal, right? Mm-hmm. So there was just something to me, that was the relatable piece. I think a lot of yeah. people, not at that extreme, but a lot of people have weight struggles. And the remarkable piece is that it was so extreme. Right. So I went into my, it was like my first green light meeting. And I was like, okay, we got this back. Jonathan has, is taking this out again this is so compelling. It's just, a there, there, there's nothing you need to do. It's just an amazing human story with a uh, built-in transformation. It's visually channel stopping. Um, it's often gut-wrenching. It's often yeah. hopeful. And, and Amy Winter was like, yeah, I, I agree. Let's do it. Um, and so in that first season, um, we were more or less editing. We had to figure out how we wanted to edit it. Did we want to do them as standalone episodes and follow one character from beginning to end? Or did we want to intercut the stories? And we ultimately decided on close-ended episodes. And a lot of it was editing footage he already had because he had been shooting so long. When it became successful, then it became like, okay, well, how are we going to make a second season? Because yeah. we, mini- we minimally need to shoot for 12, 12 months to be able to get any kind of significant transformation. And there's budget considerations because you can't have a crew. We we couldn't have a crew embedded with however many, like eight different people for a full year. So that's when it became a little bit, the show had to evolve a little bit from, from what it first was. But, um, I still love that show. I, I still, I still think it's a fantastic show. 600 pound life took things to the next level when it comes to transformation. Well, yeah. And you have to remember too, it, some of it, was rooted in my time at Discovery Health Channel. You know, when Eileen O'Neill was running Discovery Health, we would put up these medical one-offs. One of them was called 
you know, uh, the half ton man, I think the half ton man was the highest rated single one-off in the history of discovery health channel. And we did half ton teen. So we had a lot of these that we, they were often co-productions with like channel five or channel four in the UK. Um, and they always performed well. So it wasn't like an, it wasn't just, um, it wasn't just a, a shot in the dark that I thought this show could be successful. We, we had seen with some other documentaries that people were gravitating toward this kind of content. Yeah. Um, and, and I think Jonathan, and by the way, so Jonathan, who is the producer, his father is the bariatric surgeon in, oh. in that, in that series, which is why he had such intimate access and why he Got was it. able to shoot with these people um, more easily than maybe other producers could, could manage and why he had been filming in that first season for so many years. All right. So 2015, you move over to A&E. Yes. All right. Okay. Tell me about that pitch, the Leah Remini Scientology in the Aftermath pitch. So you've already had Alex Gibney with an award-winning documentary feature going clear about Scientology. So what did you hear in the pitch um, that w- that made you go, okay, well, this is different. This is going to go further than that. This is going to be, this is going to really dig into Scientology more. What made that pitch stand out? What, what made you excited about that pitch? I'll just tell you in one word, it was Leah. Okay. Right. So Leah, I think in 2013, it was, had left Scientology, wrote her book, Troublemaker. And she I think we, we met her over video, actually. It was like a video pitch. And honestly, there wasn't a firm idea. You know how like a lot of developers, like we need to know what the format is and we need sure. to know how it's going to play out over eight episodes. There was none of that. We didn't really know what this show was going to be. What we had was a very passionate, well-spoken former insider who was on a mission to reveal the truth about this organization. Yeah. And Leah is an amazing piece of talent. And we also, they, she also happened to be with um, Aaron Sedman and Eli of right. IPC, right? Who are amazing creatives and who we felt we could trust from a legal perspective, but also from a creative perspective to really bring this to life. So it, it in some ways, this, this series went beyond television. It wasn't like, oh, we're just making a television show and it's just for entertainment. Oh, no, no. Like for Leah, this was personal. And this was a real mission to expose wrongdoings um, and to to bring truth to light. So it it just had this added layer to it. And and once we actually got into, it's funny, our bosses, so Devin Graham Hammonds was our executive and she was just an impeccable executive on the show. It was a very, very difficult show to navigate from a a legal perspective, from a creative perspective. Um, And she was just impeccable. And um, our bosses used to say to us, well, what's the show? Even as we were filming, we'd be like, well, what's the show? What's the show? And we we would just be like, well, it's Leah taking, trying, you know, exposing the truth about the church of Scientology. And, uh, you know, that's like, and that's, that's the truth, but it only really started to come together as they were shooting it. Right. And, you know, Devin went out to the edit bay at some point and they showed her footage. You know, we got a cut in and the cut was fine, but it, it didn't feel like it was quite um, there. Devin right. went out to the edit bay and saw some of the footage that was more of the um, the the personal stuff where, where Mike and Leah are riding in the car, talking about who they're going to visit next, talking about the person they just interviewed. Um, having just a, a kind of a banter back and forth, sometimes lighthearted and sometimes very serious. And when she saw that, she's like, oh, this is part of the glue and part of the beating heart of this series. And so the next cut we saw had a lot of that layered in and it just started coming to life. And it was, it was, it was beautifully shot. It was powerful. Leah is just, um, uh, it was just an amazing piece of talent and Mike too. And they were on a mission and you can feel that authenticity coming out of the screen. That's how we felt about it. Are you surprised that people became so obsessed with Leah and the show? I'm not. Look, there's, I, you know, anyone who works in TV will tell you half the time you don't know. Right. Right if something's going to rate, right? Like you just don't know. 
I, there have been a few things in my life where I felt pretty sure. Now, the only, and this was one of them. And part of why I was sure was because uh, you referenced it. The Alex Gibney doc going clear, uh, I had watched it. It did really well for HBO. And HBO yeah. has you know varying degrees of success with their docs. And this one was at the very uh, top in terms of uh, how many people had watched it. I wonder if you ask Brie Bryant over at Lifetime about R. Kelly, if she would say the same. Because uh, I will tell you, there were some of us in that in the building before that aired. We're like, well, that is, yes, people are going to watch that. But, but you don't feel that with right. every show, right? You don't feel no, that with every show. No. Others, you're holding your breath on. Sure, of course. Um, I'm curious. You, you keep, you know, you mentioned a couple of times the legal aspect. How concerned were you about the legality? You know, Scientology. We've all heard about the, you know, the Church of Scientology coming after people who attack them or people who, you know, speak out against them. It really was Leah led, right? But I will also say we have a really exceptional legal team uh, at ATN and not just for that show, but for any show that we, we, we do. And we were just, um, it wasn't just creative, you know, leading the charge. We were in lockstep with legal. We were in lockstep with outside counsel. Um, we were in lockstep with IPC and their legal team. So we tread very carefully um, and we just were as buttoned up as we could possibly be. Um, it's, it, now when I reflect back, it's so amazing to me that our company even took the risk, to be honest with you. Like yeah. it's, um, it was a pretty brave, you know, and, and A&E, we were very much charging forward into this place of brave storytelling and that, embo- that show embodied it. Another project that you uh, developed that I'm, I was a big fan of, um, The Murder of Lacey Peterson. Oh, one of my favorite series to work on. <laughs> I, so I will give you props. And a friend of mine um, uh, brought, was one of the people that brought that to you, Shereen Anderson. Yes. Um, so I really enjoyed that. Um, I'm not the biggest true crime fan, but what I loved about The Murder of Lacey Peterson is the storytelling and the way it went back and forth and it felt like Gone Girl. Tell me a little bit about that development process. Um, what made you uh, green light uh, the murder of Lacey Peterson? It might've been right after OJ Made in America had Ooh, come out love that. and like, oh, and like taken so the good. world by storm, right? So good. And, yes. and so we were thinking that's so interesting. Like, are there any other big true crime um, cases that we could potentially re-examine through a different lens. Yeah. And are there any, um, you know, are there any like, is there anything in a time frame that's coming up that's an anniversary of something? And I and I think we did some internal research. And one thing we landed on was uh, the Scott Peterson trial. And I can't remember how it came to be, but Shireen had worked on a smaller documentary um, that was at a film festival. So she had been like, um, kind of immersed in this world of Scott Peterson and his family. And what was intriguing to us was the idea of looking at it through the lens of trial by media, which by the way, there's now a whole series on Netflix called Trial yeah. by Media, which is really yeah. interesting. But it was that that was what originally drew us to it. Was it was were facts buried, was the narrative um totally directed by the media? Because it was a firestorm of media yeah. coverage. And um you know, people jumped on any, and it's funny, it's still, it's even worse today in terms of how our media operates, but they were totally dictating the narrative to the point where certain pieces of information did not surface or got buried or got overlooked. And that's part of what the question we were examining in the course of that series is what was the impact and influence of the media coverage of that trial on the outcome? Um, and it wasn't that as cerebral as I just made it sound. One of the reasons why it was such a great series to work on is because left, right, and Shireen was working with them on this. They are impeccable producers yeah. and every cut that came in, I mean, you could almost have aired the rough cuts. They were, they just took you on a ride and they, and, and to, to be able to produce a show that is a past tense story, but make it feel visceral and present tense and relevant is a skill. 
and they just knocked it out of the park. The, the last, the, the one that I just watched recently that was able to do the same thing so well is uh, Don't Fuck With Cats on Netflix. Wow. That, have you so seen it? Right? So good. <laughs> right. So I mean, good. And, that, and that was, that was our friends at Raw. They're, they're exceptional producers too, but yeah. that is a skill to be yeah. able to take something past tense and make you feel like you're going on a present tense ride. Yeah. And I, and that's what Netflix, uh, that's what um, Left Right did so well for us on Lacey Peterson. And it just made you think. Like all of us on the creative team at the network were like, wait a second, is he guilty? Is he not? Right. Like we, we were yes. debating, we were debating it ourselves as the episodes unfolded. I, I, that is exactly how I felt as the viewer watching both of the, you know, both of those documentaries, but yes. Uh, so kudos on, on that project. Thank you. November of 2019, you move over to the sister network history channel. Um, so you've had, you've had a rough period of time to develop shows, very odd period of time. I'm sure it's somewhat of a different mindset in terms of what you're taking on from a pitch standpoint. How, how are you developing now that you're at History Channel? Oh, it's a completely different mindset. I was, to be honest with you, first of all, how remarkable this is, I was reflecting on this this morning. It's so remarkable to be at History Channel in, in, in this current time that we're living in. I feel like we're this will be a year for the record for the history books. And, and it's just so interesting to be at this channel at this moment in time. So um, I just, I'll say that. And I got very lucky because I was able to um, be in person and get to know the team and Eli and everybody for a couple months before we all went remote, we went into remote working. And so, um, so that's good. I didn't have to start a job, like not, not knowing anybody. Um, but Working at History Channel, I was a little had a, a little nervous when Rob Sharon. I was like, "I want you to go over to History Channel." I was like, "Okay," because <laughs> because most of my career has been spent in more female environments in terms of the kind of content. I spent six years at Discovery Health, three years at TLC. A and E is a very dual skewing network, and the shows yes. I worked on were more female skewing. So to go over to History, which is, which is a predominantly uh, male audience. Um, and also I'm someone who is, um, not, I have, I haven't traditionally been a big student of history. Like I ha I'm not someone who in my free time reads history books and watches history documentaries. That hasn't been who, you know, who I, ha I am doing more of that now since I'm in this job. But, um, I was pleasantly surprised to find history to be a really fun brand to work on. And what we've really been doing, um, and they had put this in motion before I started, we've really been going back to our brand name of history. Because if you, you probably know, and like there was a period in, in television where all the male factual brands were all in each other's business. Like there was oh, almost yeah. like, it was almost like there were no brands. They were all just doing like male reality shows. It was and, all, um, we used to joke, it was all um, beards. It yep. was all just like guys with beards. All dudes right? with beards, mostly in dudes Alaska. With beards, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's true. And so it's been so amazing because Eli's like, we are going to reclaim history. We, you know, every show we do, we want there to be a core of history or a real strong connection to history. And it doesn't mean everything we do has to be about the civil war or about a president, although we will certainly continue to do those. Um, some of our most successful shows on the channel have been what I call living history, which means it's real people in the real world right now doing something that connects to history. So if you go back and look, you know, uh, Pawn Stars was one of our, our biggest shows of all time. Uh, in recent years, both Alone and Forged and Fire have done very well. And on, and on their face value, um, you would never think of a show in a pawn shop as a history show or, right. a, or a bladesmith competition as a history show. But when you watch the show, you see there is a very, very strong connection to history in both of those shows. We are developing, we're trying to broaden our palette, right? We've got our beautiful high-end megadocs. This year, we launched Grant and Washington with great success. Um, we've got a new uh, strand coming called History's Greatest Mysteries, where Lawrence Fishburne takes us into some of the most you know, well-known mysteries um, with a new lens. There's either a new piece of evidence or a declassified documents or a diary, something that gives us a new way in to explore these big mysteries. Um, and meanwhile, we, we continue to look for ways to innovate in formats. 
and to find, you know, what's our next generation of living history, because, you know, the, the bearded reality stuff has gotten a little tired, right? I think yes. people are, we, okay, we've seen that we've done it. That had its moment. What's the next generation of, I don't even want to call it reality show, but the next generation of living history show. Yeah. for our channel. So that's all been really, really fun. For people listening who want to pitch you, you hate this yes. question. No, tell me, go for what it. Should they, what, should they, what should they be developing? What should they come and pitch you? First, let me start with the easy of what they should probably not be pitching at the moment. Um, yeah. I would say we're, we're not really hunting for new mega docs at the moment. Uh, we've got quite a pipeline and also some of those are a little bit more challenging to produce in the time of COVID. Okay, so we're 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 not really on the hunt for the next mega doc. Um, although, look, if someone has some something brilliant, don't stop yourself. But it's not okay. it's not the biggest priority. Um, we're not really looking for random one off specials. History used to do a lot of those, but we've we're not really doing those much anymore. So we're really looking for. Um, new history formats. And look, it could, it could run the gamut. I don't know if you've seen, there's a show on Netflix called Explained. It's an yes. explainer, right? So it yeah, could sure. be something that takes the shape like of that. It could be, uh, I know you mentioned transactional. Uh, it feels like this is a space history kind of uh, pioneered yes. uh, in terms of that genre. And no one's really reinvented it. No one's figured out a new way to come at it. And I would love to figure that out. Um, I still think there is a fascination with objects of value and it doesn't always have to be what, how much money can I get for this? There's, I'm very interested right now. And I've seen a lot of stuff coming out of the UK that deals with re restoring old objects, bringing mm -hmm. things back to life. And often um, these objects have an emotional connection with the owner who has them has a very strong emotional connection to them. That's something very interesting would love to find the next competition show. You know, we okay. right now, um, Forged in Fire still does quite well yeah. for us, right? And it would be yeah. great to find something else that isn't about weapons. Like we would find <laughs> a, a competition show that isn't a yeah. weaponry competition show. You know, we've recently put some fun ones into production that are, that use uh, archival and like caught on camera stuff with a, with okay. a history lens. So more to come on those. But um, I think overall, we are looking for returnable series that have a core of history that somehow innovate creatively um, and are aspirational and more fun as opposed to being on like the dark, you know, I don't think dark and gritty is something we're trying to embody right now. Um, <laughs> that makes sense considering that most of the news is dark and gritty. So that, that makes sense. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And like one of the most fun things that we have in development um, is actually this really, it's a core history show, but instead of doing the classic, and this is sort of what I mean by innovating, instead of doing the classic talking head recreation model, um, this company has been working with an animation house oh, nice. to do um, like graphic novel style animation to bring these stories to life instead of using recreation. And it just feels really, really fresh and fun. Um, so hopefully that answers your question. And yeah, yes, no, we'd that's have to great. Be, we'd have to be zooming, uh, and not meeting in person, but, um, yes, yes. but history is fun. A, they're all, history is a really fun, um, place to develop for. And I, the one thing I don't, I don't want to forget is we are trying to bring more diversity to our channel. Okay. Uh, it really is, a, it really is a mission and we, and we've been on, we've been working on this, um, for a, a little while, but obviously it's become even more important in the wake of everything happening in our country. Yeah. Uh, history, history belongs to everybody and should reflect everybody. And so, um, we are really looking to find those stories, those characters, um, that can make our air both in front of the camera and behind the camera, more a reflection of what America looks like. Okay. Yeah, of course. Um, all right. Th I think this will help a lot of people. What do you love when you hear a pitch? And what do you hate? Like, what drives you nuts? There's got to be certain things, like that. Like, that. What drives you? Tell me. What drives you nuts? What do you love and hate? Oh man, why are you? Oh, you put me on the spot. Put it back um, on you. I want to hear what you, you say. Put it back on me. Um. Okay. Uh, so, 
I hate when someone pitches me something and they haven't done their research and there's another show out there that's exactly the same. That's like a good literally, point. Literally, like it, it's, you know, it's either on the air or has just been greenlit or was on a, a year ago or whatever. And it's exactly the same. And I've had that happen. So that annoys me. Um, what I love is when someone has done their homework and com comes in and either has somebody attached or has, has like, um, has the format down pat, like has thought through what the show is, is going to look like past just here's a log line and get excited. So, um, okay, those are I, good answers. Those yeah, are good that, answers. That's me. That's me. What about I, you? I, I share that, but it, I'll, I'll, so you made me think of one. So one thing that drives me nuts is when I will say, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll say, I'm looking, I want to find a car series for history channel. Okay. But I don't want it to be a car series that feels like it belongs on Discovery. So that means I don't want to be in a shop doing car fabrication and flipping. And I don't want to be out on the street doing like adrenalized, uh, you know, street racing. Yeah, you um, I don't want, diesel. I don't want, right. Yeah. I don't want all the gearhead stuff. Okay. And they're like, oh, they're like, okay, I totally get it. And they will then send me a pitch that is exactly a show that feels like a Discovery motor Got show. It. Got it. So, yeah, that makes so that, sense. So that drives me a little, that drives me a little crazy. But then I also think, okay, then I also reflect back on myself. I'm like, maybe I'm just not, I need, maybe I need to give a little bit more information about what I think would make a history car show. So then I, I just, I, I, I try to take it in a little bit. Like maybe I'm not communicating in the right way. And I try to, you know, rethink how I'm talking to people about the kind of show I'm looking for, but that happens. And then I'm thinking, and, and like you, what I do love is when a, a producer comes in and they have a really clear vision of what the show is and how it's innovative and different from things that have come before it. They can very clearly articulate to me why it's history. Um, and they're just excited about it. It doesn't feel like they're just trying to sell a show. They are genuinely excited about the idea for the show. Yeah. And so like, for example, the company we're working with on the animation hybrid they are so damn excited about that show. Like yeah. they can't wait to make it. And so therefore, it, you know, things get crafted in a more loving way and it comes out pretty badass. <laughs> it just, nice. I just think yeah. it, it all shows up on screen when people really love what they're working on. I do want to ask you, we're recording here on July 30th and the nominations for the Emmys were just announced this past week. And yes. Leah Remini, Scientology in the Aftermath, uh, was nominated again for um, informational series or special. Yes. Yeah. So um, how exciting is it to be a part of, I know you're not at a &E anymore, but still to be a part of, uh, of a show that, um, you know, you won an Emmy, now nominated again. How exciting is it to be a part of a show that is so highly regarded? Uh, it's incredibly exciting. And um, more than the show being highly regarded, it's a show that has made a difference in people's lives. It's given voices to victims. Like it, it served more of a purpose than just being about television. And of course, it's an amazing thing to be, you know, to, to be held in that kind of esteem or for, to, have, to have worked on a show that is recognized by peers within our industry. But I think more important than that, it has tentacles beyond television. And it's funny because, you know, A&E, we just won another, a daytime Emmy for a show that's called The Day I Picked My Parents, which is a show about this amazing program called Kid Save, which uh -huh. um, flips the adoption script on its ear and puts the, the choice in the hands of um, these teenage kids who are looking for their forever home. And similarly, it's a great privilege to work on a show like that. But similarly, it's a show that makes a real difference in people's lives. And so I think um, that's, as I get older, that's becoming more important to me. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it's just thinking about like, what's the, what's the legacy you're leaving? What's the mark you're leaving? Like, sure. what, good are you, what good are you doing and putting out in the world? And yes, there's entertainment, but there's also entertainment with impact. And I think it's important to have both. And so I feel incredibly lucky um, to have worked on the A&E brand, to have been a part of that show, um, to have watched Leah uh, on her mission to blow the, you know, blow it all open and give voice to the victims. And um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to see it nominated. That was for the finale episode, which was the, to the whole series, which was a right. very, very powerful closing out of that, that chapter. So yeah. We, you just won my, my vote. So there <laughs> oh, you go. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I know you're busy, so I, I appreciate the time. Thank you. I, I don't think it's going to beat out your big brother episode. <laughs> That's tough. There's a the Big Brother fans are are rabid. I feel like you need you know who else is rabid? The 90 Day Fiance fans. I feel like you got to get got to get up here. Got to get got to get Matt Sharp and Howard Lee up in here. Like talk 90 Day Fiance one of these days. You know, I that will be that will be my goal now. I'll get Matt and Howard. Yeah, you're right. They they're all over Twitter. Those 90 Day Fiance fans. They're, they're rabid about it. It's, yeah. it's funny. Yeah, That was another one, though, that was born when Amy, that show came out of the Amy Winter era as well. Um, that show, the, the original season. And yeah. smartly, they've spun it off six ways from Sunday into oh all my the God, juicy. Yes. I know, it's amazing. So <laughs> anyway, thank you. <laughs> all right, take care. Okay, bye. Now, for everybody listening, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe, download, and rate it with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. You can also write a question if you have one, and then I'll answer it on the show. Email those questions to no script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Thanks to Mike DeLay and Real Voice LA for the audio hookup, and thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.